Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4. If you're new with us, we welcome you this morning. And just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And um, in our previous studies of John 4, we were introduced to a woman from Samaria who had a thirsty soul to know God. And as we have pointed out, the Samaritans were a people who were hated by the Jews. Now, we've already talked about this, but let me revisit it because we have some new people and it's really important to understand this for the study this morning. You see, after King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. He wasn't very bright, kind of a dunderhead, and uh, out of his youthful pride and arrogance, well, he pushed the people to the point where uh, the kingdom was split in two. Uh, ten northern tribes became Israel, the capital being Samaria, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin became the southern kingdom of Judah. Their capital was Jerusalem. Now, as we've already said, the southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings and experienced some honest periods of revival, whereas the uh, northern kingdom of Israel had no good kings, and they went from bad to worse morally and spiritually. Now God sent prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom for a couple hundred years, warning them, pleading with them, that if they didn't stop with the idolatry and all the immorality, well, he was going to have to judge them. They refused to listen to what the prophet said, and so in 722 BC, that judgment came in the form of the Assyrians. The Assyrians came, from, and they were the powerhouse at that time, the world empire. And so they came against the northern kingdom of Israel, they conquered it, and they removed most of the inhabitants from the land of Israel and sprinkled them throughout the Assyrian empire. They left only a, a small population in the land, the elderly, the poor, the infirm to tend to the land. And then what they did was they took people from all over the, the area where they had already conquered, Gentiles, and they put them into the northern kingdom to repopulate that land. Now, shortly after the Assyrians did this, and they repopulated the land, the northern kingdom of Israel, with all these foreigners, well, lions began to attack the people. And so they quickly sent word to the king of Assyria, saying, look, we've upset, we've upset the god of this land. Now, they believed in local deities, the pagans did. And uh, we, we don't know how to worship this god. And so we've upset him, and these lions are coming. So please, king, send back one of the priests of Israel that he might teach us the proper way to worship this God, lest he destroy all of us. And so that's what happened. Interestingly, that God, having sent a priest now back to the land to teach the people how to properly worship the God of Israel, what God did was he exposed many thousands of pagans and foreigners to the God of Israel and began to teach them about him. Well, as we've already talked about, the Jews that were left in the land eventually married the Gentiles that had been brought in to repopulate the northern kingdom of Israel. And the result was a race of people who were a mixture of Jew and Gentile, a race that later became known as the Samaritans. Now, 115 years after the northern kingdom was taken captivity was taken captive by the Assyrians, 
the southern kingdom of Judah had gotten so bad that God brought the Babylonians against them. And the Babylonians conquered them, brought them back to Babylon, where they remained in captivity for 70 years. But after the captivity ended, Cyrus, the king of Persia, let the people go, even gave them money to go back. There's a whole story behind that. Get our Daniel. It's an amazing story. Uh, but God prophesied uh, a guy king would rise named Cyrus, and God would use this king to let his people go from the captivity, finance the rebuilding of the temple that King Cyrus helped to rebuild. Um, and so about 50,000 or so left Babylon, only 50,000. Uh, they were the most committed to God because the rest had built houses, started businesses in Babylon. They were prospering. They don't want to make the 700-mile journey, hard journey, back to Israel to, to start all over again. Only the cream of the crop. This is how God dealt with the idolatry prop. He brought all the people to Babylon, and the ones that had a heart for idolatry stayed there. And only the purest, the most committed to the Lord, came out and went back to Israel. So these folks began the process of rebuilding the city, rebuilding its walls, and the temple. Well, as soon as they started the work, here comes a group of Samaritans down. And they said to the people of, of, the, of the land of Judah, Look, you know, we're related to you. Well, they had Jewish blood in them, right? And we have a strong affinity for the God of Israel because they had been taught to worship him. We want to help rebuild the southern king. We want to help rebuild the temple and so on. However, these Jews that had now come back from Babylon refused their help. You see, they saw these people as half-breeds, a defiled race, a mixture of Jew and Gentile, the very thing God had forbidden in the law, and therefore they saw these people, the Samaritans, as outside the covenant that God made with the Jewish people through Moses. They were defiled. And they didn't want anything to do with them. And so because of it, because they rejected these people, a deep animosity uh, grew between the, the Samaritans and the Jews, especially the Jews living in Judea, and in particular in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans said, well, forget you. They went back to Samaria, and they built their own temple to the Lord on top of Mount Gerizim near Shechem in John 4. It came to be known as Sychar. And they began to worship the God of Israel through a kind of, listen, do-it-yourself religion, which was a revised form of Judaism. Now that led to an even deeper division between Jews and Samaritans. You see, the Jews said that on top of Mount Moriah, where Solomon built the temple, well, that was the only and legitimate place where God could be worshipped. As we've already said, the Samaritans had built a temple to Yahweh on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, a temple that was destroyed in 128 B.C. However, they still maintained, the Samaritans did, that Mount Gerizim in Samaria was the only place where God could rightfully and acceptably be worshipped. So this is the background. This woman, who, who sincere, the Samaritan woman who sincerely wants to know God, and offer him genuine, true worship, is confused. She doesn't know which of the two mountains she should worship God on, Gerizim or Moriah. And so she basically is asking the Lord, well, where is the place where God can be found? Still thinking like a pagan, local deity. Where is the place where God can be found and properly worshipped? Hence her statement in verse 20, 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now from the context, she's basically saying, look, I want to worship God. Where can I go to find God? And that basic question set the stage for Jesus to teach her and all of us, really, about true worship. And folks, that is the topic. That is what is in view here. This is what, we're, what Jesus is going to be teaching on and why we now want to focus on it. And we'll first of all look at the worship of the old covenant. So we pick it up in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So here, the Lord Jesus settles the controversy about where true worship was to be conducted and which people were offering it acceptably. He tells this woman that the people were the Jewish people, and the place was Mount Moriah. And guys, this was in agreement with what God had ordained for the worship of himself under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant that God made with his people Israel, he gave them very specific, and listen, ironclad instructions on how he was to be worshipped and where he was to be worshipped. Now, initially, that place of worship moved wherever the tabernacle was located. You remember how God brought his people out of Egypt and brought them to the base of Sinai, proposed a covenant with them, and gave to Moses the law, and part of what God gave to Moses were instructions for the people to build a tabernacle. This would be a temporary house of God. It would be a place they would carry with them in the wilderness. Now, they were not intended by God, although he knew what was going to happen. Uh, it was not ever intended that they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It was, gonna, it was only an 11-day journey from, from Mount Horeb, Sinai, to the Promised Land. A, an 11-day journey that took 40 years. Because once they got to the border of the land, the spies went into this giants, man, living in this land. We can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers uh, next to them. So the people feared, listen to the ten evil spies, Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, they're big. Our God's bigger. Let's go. He's given it to us. But the people were afraid. And so because they wouldn't enter in, God drove them back out into the wilderness for 40 years. Right? You remember the story. He led them by day through a pillar of cloud and by night by a pillar of fire. And every time the, 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 the Shekinah glory, every time it stopped, that's where the tabernacle was set up. That's where the worship of God was conducted. When God lifted up and the Shekinah glory began to move, oh, that was the, the key to the sign to break everything down. The tabernacle could be taken apart and carried, follow the Shekinah glory, follow the Lord. Wherever he stopped, that was the place the tabernacle was to be set up and where worship was to be conducted. Well, this went on for the 40 years, of course. Then Joshua led them into the promised land. The, ark, uh, the tabernacle came with them. Initially, it was in, um, it was in um, Gilgal and then Shiloh. And about four or 500 years later, David uh, purchased the, uh, uh, the threshing floor of Aruna, uh, this high mountain we know as Mount Moriah. And there he put the tabernacle. There the worship of God was conducted. 
And there eventually Solomon built the temple. That became the God-ordained place where worship and sacrifice only could be conducted from the mount, top of Mount Moriah. And again, guys, this was the only place where the Jews were to worship God by bringing their sacrifices and other offerings. Sacrifices and offerings, listen, that could only be offered to God by the priests of the Old Covenant, the descendants of Aaron. They were the only ones that were allowed to offer sacrifices to God under the Old Covenant. Now, guys, when the Lord uh, said to this, this Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know, listen to me, he essentially was condemning the Samaritan mode of worship. This is in stark contrast to those people today who say that all religions are equally good, all forms of worship are equally valid, and all spiritual roads lead to God. However, Jesus absolutely rejected that idea when he said to this Samaritan woman that she and her people worship, listen, falsely out of ignorance. While the Father was actually seeking true worshipers who would offer him true worship. In other words, the Lord Jesus stated categorically that there is true worship and false worship. There is true, excuse me, there is true religion and false religion, and ultimately there are true worshipers and false worshipers. Now, guys, this is an extremely important statement by Jesus, because through it he is telling us that God only accepts true worship, which means there is false worship which he doesn't accept. He only accepts true worship offered to him by true worshipers. We'll get into that in a moment. And only they, from the context, only they will be accepted by God and eventually be entering into heaven. The Lord Jesus informed this woman that the worship of the Samaritans, and I'm sure it was sincere, didn't matter, was neither authorized nor approved by God. They had invented it and practiced it on their own terms, according to their liking in disobedience to what God had revealed in his word about what was the proper and only way he was to be worshipped. The Samaritans were guilty of what some have called do-it-yourself worship, self-styled worship. The worship of Cain, right? Uh, God told Abel and Cain how to worship him, how to approach him. Uh, Abel brought the proper sacrifice and was accepted by God, Cain, decided, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to bring whatever I want. God better like it. And that's what and God didn't like it and didn't, God didn't accept it. But a lot of people have this mindset. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to worship God the way I want. It's self-styled, do-it-yourself worship. And this is a, something that Jesus is dealing with here. This was in contrast to the worship of the Jews. You see, God had set apart the Jewish people as his chosen people. And had given them complete and ironclad, as I said, instructions on the proper way they were to worship him. Under the old covenant, God mandated that he was to be worshipped with certain animal sacrifices and offerings. And a thousand years before Christ, that it was to be done only on Mount Moriah, and then only through God's ordained priesthood, the sons of Aaron. In saying that salvation is of the Jews, Jesus was affirming that the Jewish people were God's covenant people. And as such, God appointed them to be messengers of the old covenant, which is why he gave to them his holy scriptures. But also, 
he was saying that it was through the Jewish nation that Messiah, the Savior of mankind, was promised by God to someday come to the earth. Well, of course, that day had already come as Jesus spoke these words. However, under the new covenant which Jesus came to bring, he came to bring also a new kind of worship to the people of God. Now, as we said, Judaism had been the worship system under the old covenant for roughly 1,500 years, ever since it had been given to the Jewish people through Moses from Mount Sinai. And yet, Paul the Apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, that when Moses came down from Sinai, you remember, though, he's, talk, he's, he's thinking of the Old Testament, of course. When uh, Moses came down from Mount Sinai, remember how his face was glowing, was radiating with glory. And so he puts a veil over his face, right? And people read that and go, well, he did that because it was so blinding the people couldn't look at him. No, Paul tells in 2 Corinthians 3, the reason Moses did that was because he knew the glory was already starting to fade. The glory of what? Of the old covenant, the law. It was already starting to fade, so he put a veil over his face so the people would not be able to notice that the glory was fading, even as right after the thing was given to Israel. And Paul tells us that even back then, God was laying the groundwork for the new covenant and how it would someday replace the old. The old covenant with its entire worship system would eventually fade out while the new covenant would fade in. And guys, this is exactly what John the Baptist meant. And if you don't know this, Luke 16, 16 tells us John the Baptist was the last prophet, the spokesman, was the last prophet of the old covenant period. Remember what he said in John uh, 4, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John 3, 30, Remember what he said when uh, the people were coming and Jesus had started his ministry and uh, a lot of folks were going to Jesus now and weren't coming to John anymore. And uh, the disciples said, uh, you know, John, don't you, aren't you concerned or doesn't it bother you that, uh, that so many are now going to Jesus and no longer coming to us? And John said, I'm not sorry at all. He must increase. I must decrease. What was John saying? In essence, he was saying, I'm the last spokesman of the Old Covenant period. The Old Covenant needs to fade out now because the Lord Jesus, the one who would bring the New Covenant, is here. And so the New was going to now replace the Old. The Old sacrificial system would be no more. No more would the Jewish people have to bring endless animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. Jesus, the great high priest of the new covenant, would offer himself as the Lamb of God, listen, once for all people, to take away, not to temporarily cover their sins. See, under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and so on can never take away sin. It can only cover sin. We talk about a, a covering, kafar, uh, yam kippur, day of covering. Uh, the old covenant could never take away sin. But God allowed it to temporarily cover sin until the ultimate sacrifice could come. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, John 1.29. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So under the new covenant, Jesus would offer himself once for all people to take away their sin once and for all time. John 4.23, Jesus said, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When you see the term true worshipers, understand it's synonymous with true Christian. True Christian. All right? Let me share with you four elements of true worship. That's the whole subject that we're dealing with. Let me share with you four elements of true worship as Jesus stated or alluded to here in these verses in John 4. First of all, and remember now, think like a Jewish person for just a minute. And all the years, okay, since Moses, 1500, they were used to obey, to uh, worshiping God a certain way as the covenant people. Nobody else worshiped God but them, right? Now, Jesus has come to bring something new in. New covenant, new worship. And first of all, this new worship, true worship, would consist of many different people. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. That he loves all the people of the world the same. Because they have all been made by him in his image. When somebody says to you, we are all the children of God, no. We are not all the children of God. We are all the creation of God. We can become the children of God if we receive Christ, and there's no limit to who can do that. So technically, theoretically, the whole world could receive Christ and become children of God. 1 John 2, 1, he is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world, right? We have all been made by God in his image. We are all the creation of God. And it must grieve his heart to see how that all the people of this world, how that they all came about through one man and one woman, common parents, Adam and Eve, which means, guys, there is only one race on planet Earth, and that is the human race, the human race. And yet as these folks spread out to inhabit various areas and regions of the Earth, different um, Different things came into play, some genetic, uh, you know, some, you know, what, you know, that would caused um, uh, different uh, skin pigmentation, right? The difference between, I was doing a little research and they, some people think that, you know, the, the people that live closest to the equator with the highest concentration of, of UV rays, uh, you know, God allowed their skin to become uh, more dominated with melanin than maybe the rest of us. And that in a way, would help block out some of the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, ultraviolet radiation. Let me just say this. There is no such thing as white people, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm not white. I'm just a lighter shade of brown. We all have melanin in our, you know, in our skin. Some people have a higher concentration, a higher you know, pigmentation, and so they're darker than others. But look... We are all, we all still belong to the same family of human beings. And prejudice and hatred of any people based on their skin color or any other kind of physical attributes like, we'll say, the Chinese whose eyes are more slanted. Any prejudice based on, against somebody for the color of their skin or any physical, uh, physical attribute, things that they were born with, any racism, that is not of the spirit of God, that's of the devil. I mean, prejudice, no matter who it's directed towards, whether you're talking about prejudice of the Jews towards the Samaritans, the Samaritans towards the Jews, or any other group, 
or a person that has prejudice towards anybody else or any other group. Again, this is not from God. This is of the devil who has come to divide us against each other. And he's doing a good job, isn't he? He is doing a good job. But this is especially egregious when it's found in the church of Jesus Christ. The place where there should be no prejudice. I'd like to tell you that's true. But because a church is full of people and people have flaws and they have biases and they have prejudices, well, there was a saying down in the South years ago that 11 o'clock was the most segregated time of the week on Sunday morning. Because you had your black churches, their white churches. I, I like to see when all God's people come together. It, it blesses my heart. I'm sure it blesses his even more. To see in one church, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, uh, all kinds of folks coming together to worship God. Because let me tell you this. Our unity in Christ, the Spirit of God in each of us, that unity is a stronger unity because it's based on God's love and so on. It's a stronger unity than the hate and prejudice which may have divided us at one time before we were saved. And any church that is spirit-filled knows this and doesn't care about what color a person's skin is. They don't care about any kind of, of outward uh, uh, physical characteristics. In fact, we don't even care if somebody walks in or all tatted up and, and body pierced and purple hair. You know what? It doesn't matter. If you want to know my God, that's great. You're welcome here. I was telling first service about one of our missionaries, or our, our missionary, I like to say we had more, but uh, our missionary in Israel, James. James will tell you he's coming back. His t time over there is over. Been out there 20 years. He's coming back. He will tell you before he got saved, he hated his Jewish people. He was totally anti-Semitic. Then he got saved and went with us on our first trip to Israel 20 years ago. He fell in love with the Jewish people, fell in love with the land, and stayed out there and asked for the last 20 years as a volunteer. He doesn't make any money. Uh, he depends on our church to support him and some other churches. He has spent the last 20 years volunteering to take care of Jewish people in handicapped homes, some of the most incredibly handicapped people you can imagine. They can't feed themselves. They can't bathe themselves. They can't use the washroom by themselves. They can't clean up after they use the washroom by themselves. And James has done all of that for 20 years. He doesn't talk about love. He demonstrates it. Why could a man who hated Jews all of a sudden become a man who now loves the Jews to that extent? Because the Spirit of God came inside of him and made him a new creation. And God who made all of us now filled his heart. And because God is no respecter of person, because God loves everybody on this planet, he put a love in James' heart for God's people, the Jews. Would to God we would all follow in James' footsteps. And when people walk into Calvary and Alcorn, I, mean, I like to think they could. But when people walk into our church, they don't see black, white, Asian, Latino. They see people who love God. Uh, that we truly colorblind. That we just <laughs> don't care what you look like. You, you love the Lord. I do too. Let's praise the Lord. So first of all, true worship, Jesus said, would consist of many different kinds of people from every corner of the world. Number two, true worship would be carried out in many different places. 
Of course, the top of Mount Moriah was the place where the Jewish temple, as I said, was located. Uh, the place where God was, uh, had been worshipped for a thousand years, roughly since the time of Solomon, although David put the tabernacle there and worshipped uh, you know, 40 or so years before that, um, before Solomon built the temple. But the temple had been on Mount Moriah, Calvary, for roughly a thousand years, we'll say. However, under the new covenant, the temple of God would not be a brick-and-mortar building, and worship would not be limited to any one location. Jesus said it right here in John 4.21. Listen now. He said that true worship is not a matter of locality. It is a matter of the heart. That is the big change that took place between the old covenant worship and new covenant worship. And listen, since Jesus came, died, rose again, ascended back to his Father, and the Spirit of God uh, was poured out and came to live in the heart of every child of God, listen to me, we have all, as children of God, now become the temple of God in the new covenant, and everywhere we go becomes a place of worship. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. This is true individually and collectively. We are the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 16, Paul said to the Corinthians, Do you, do you not know that you, and in the Greek it's plural, he's addressing them as a local church. He is saying that don't you know as the church, the local church, of Jesus Christ, that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, the local church, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you collectively are. Then if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 19. Paul said, or do you not know that your body, now he's talking to individual Christians, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. Under the new covenant, true worship would no longer be limited to one location, Mount Moriah. Now it would take place in the heart of every child of God, listen, and wherever they would be, that would be a place of worship. This means that you don't have to go to church to worship God. There are some folks who believe that they can only worship God in their local church. And of course, the more or ornate the church, the more they feel like they're in the presence of God. So they walk in, and there are statues everywhere, and stained glass windows, and on the ceiling there's clouds and pictures of angels. And they walk in, and they feel like they're in the presence of God. And in their mind, this is where God hangs out. This is where He lives. This is the only place I can go to worship Him. That's not true. Because if you're a genuine Christian, you are the church of Jesus Christ. And wherever you go, God goes with you, so to speak. He's everywhere anyways. He's omnipresent. But I'm, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? But also, guys, under the new covenant, every believer in Christ, the Bible says, would become the priests of the new covenant. And therefore, worthy to approach God. And Hebrews 4 says boldly in the new covenant which only Aaron and his sons could do under the Old Covenant worship. 
Today, guys, as priests of God, we don't offer animal sacrifices to him. We offer the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 15, excuse me, 13, 15. And listen, our very lives we offer to him in service to him as a form of worship. In Romans 12, verse 1, let me read it to you out of the NIV. Paul said, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, in other words, your whole life, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Listen, this is your spiritual act of worship. This is how we as priests of the new covenant worship God. We don't offer animal sacrifice. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Every day on the altar of sacrifice, we lay ourselves symbolically and say, Lord, today, here I am, use me. And so, guys, true worship, the worship of the new covenant, first of all, would consist of many different people, would be carried out in many different places. Number three, it would be conducted in spirit and in truth. Not through religious rituals, ceremonies, the lighting of candles, the praying of rosaries, and all the other man-made do-it-yourself worship techniques that man has developed over the centuries with which to worship God. Now, I know this because I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and, um, you know, I did all these things to worship God, and I had a sincere heart. The problem is you can be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. So a lot of folks who think they're honoring God and they're walking down the broad way that they, feel, they think leads to heaven and God and Jesus said those, that road leads to destruction. Very tolerant, is very accepting of all kinds of religions. Do whatever you want. Worship God however you feel. Anything's acceptable as long as it's sincere. No. No. You can be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. Case in point, the Jewish people. Listen to what Paul said. And, and this would apply to any religious group. But he was Jewish. Let him from, from his own mouth tell you about the Jews. He said, I bear them witness. That is Jewish people, unsaved Jewish zealots of the law. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You could have a zeal for God, and yet it be an ignorant zeal. Or you're not really honoring God by doing what he has said, Right? Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness or the requirements of God with regard to how we approach Him and how we are to worship Him. It's again what some have called self-styled worship. The worship of Cain, the worship of many others. The Jewish people were zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. They didn't accept God's way to approach him and be saved through Jesus Christ. They rejected Christ. And they continued. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross and at the moment he uh, said it is finished and bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, right? What happened at that very instant? Remember? The veil of the temple, this thing 30 feet high, 18 inches thick, made of woven fabric on top of woven fabric. Took 300 Levites to take it down to wash it. This thing was torn from top to bottom by God. The moment Jesus died on the cross, it was God's way of saying, rip open house. You're, anyone who believes in my son can come to me directly. No more barriers. Religion is over. Judaism is done. 
What did the Jews do? They sewed it back up. And they kept on worshiping God with dead sacrifices and ceremonies. So what did God do 38 years later? He just wiped the temple out. The Romans came in and leveled it. God said enough is enough. Exclamation point. Judaism is done. Hear my son. You look to him now. He will tell you and show you the way to approach me. Look, the only kind of worship the Father is seeking, the only kind he will accept, listen, is worship in spirit and in truth. Again, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And notice, guys, how emphatic and definitive this injunction by Jesus Christ is. He said, must worship. Underline that word, must worship. There's no ambiguity, right? There's no room for compromise or discussion or negotiation in the matter. This must is absolute and it's final. The only kind of worship the Father will accept is, first of all, worship in spirit. And a person can't worship in spirit until they are first born of the spirit. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious guy, a Pharisee, he said, most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, the idea is born of the Spirit. You can read down in verse 7. He, he talks about that. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God, cannot get into heaven. Okay? The only worshipers who are true are those who have been born of the Spirit. And because they're born of the Spirit, genuine Christians, that means they will see heaven someday. This is in contrast to all the religious people of the world who are sincere and even zealous. Proverbs 15, verse 8, the sacrifice or the worship of the wicked. And anybody who is not a true Christian, God puts in the category of the wicked. They may not be wicked in the sense that we think of wicked. And certainly there's different levels or different degrees of rebellion and sin. But God sees all unbelievers, all people outside of Christ as being wicked and um, the wrath of God abiding on them. He said, the, the worship of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright, of true Christians, is his delight. Guys, listen to me. No one, no matter how religious they are, can offer God acceptable worship if they haven't been born of the Spirit, if they are not a born-again Christian. And that's what the Lord Jesus tells us. All right? I don't care how religious you are. I don't care, you know, what you're... And look, one thing you need to understand, okay? Um, we talk about joining the church of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the true church, the body of Christ, not the building on the corner. Anybody can join that. And a lot of churches don't care who you are, as long as you give money, okay? But if we're talking about you becoming a member of the true church, the church of Jesus Christ, remember this. You can't join that church. You have to be born into it. You have to be born into it. And once a person has been born again of the Spirit, saved, well, then they still must worship God in truth, right? The Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit, genuinely saved, but then in truth. Turn to Matthew 15. Of course, the truth is the truth of God is revealed in his word. 
Let me show you something out of Matthew 15. Jesus here is talking about the Jewish people, primarily the Jewish leaders who were very zealous, many of them Pharisees, again, very zealous for Judaism. You should read Isaiah 1, though. God says, you know what, I'm sick and tired of your offerings and your new moons and Sabbaths and all this stuff. Your hearts are far from me. You're going through the motions. You think that makes me happy because you come to the temple and offer a bunch of sacrifices and then you go out and you rip your neighbor off and you live in sin. You think that you think coming to church is all that I'm after? Oh, look, they're in church, Gabriel. Look, at they're all in church today. Isn't that wonderful? And then you, people go out, and then they cheat, and they steal, and they do all kinds of bad things. But I go to church. Who cares? God doesn't care. Again, worship is not a locality. It's a matter of the heart. Where's your heart at, right? But God said to these very religious folks, Jesus did, quoting from the Old Testament, he said, verse 8, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And listen, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. People can't worship God in truth if they're not following what God has said in his word. Of course, this would include the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, Christian cults, uh, Christian scientists who obviously have a lot of false teaching that they use to worship God with. But look, again, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. It would also include false religious systems like Roman Catholicism. Why do I say, and Roman Catholicism is not a cult, because they believe in the true God, Jesus Christ. They believe he died for our sins, rose again the third day bodily from the grave. They are not a cult, but they are a false religious system. Why? Because they take the gospel and add to it human works and say, well, now to get to heaven, you have to have faith plus works. No. Read Galatians. Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? You think that God needs our help to finish the work he began? You think on the cross, Jesus said, well, it's almost finished. Bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. And I'm rooting for you guys now. you got your part to fulfill. Come on. Seriously? Jesus did it all. God shares his glory with no man or woman. The Catholic Church teaches that, look, it's faith plus good works and keeping religious rituals and ceremonies. That's all a way of, of um, worshiping God and getting into heaven. As I told First Service for centuries, many devout Catholic mystics have uh, fasted uh, as a way to kind of punish themselves, you know, and as a way to kind of, um, uh, you know, impress God and get in good with God and, you know, I've got to beat myself up and I've got to uh, fast. And they fasted so much, many of them starved themselves to death. That honors God. Every year in the Philippines at Easter time, devout Catholics will walk barefoot through, barefoot through the streets on sharp rocks and broken pieces of glass, flagellating themselves with whips, you know, whipping their backs, tearing their backs open. Why? Because in their minds, it's a way of atoning for their sins and worshiping God. Guys, these forms of worship, so-called, are not according to the truth of God's word. He never commanded them. He never prescribed them. They are nothing more than ignorant, blasphemous acts of man-made piety 
that God not only rejects, listen, he will hold them accountable for on the day of judgment. Why? Because they thought they could add to the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. Turn to Isaiah quickly, 53. We bring this to a close. Why is that so bad? For people to do things that they think might add in their salvation, might you know work in some small way, maybe even for their salvation. Move over, Jesus. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna whip myself, and I'm gonna punish myself, and this is the way I'm gonna earn salvation. Isaiah 53, starting with verse five. But he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. We were whipped. We were chastened uh, that we could have peace. He was so that we could have peace with God. And by his stripes, the whip marks on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. And God help the man or woman who says, well, that's all well and fine, but move over, Jesus, because I'm going to whip myself. I'm going to punish myself because I want to get in there and I want to help. I want to help purchase my salvation, too. That's blasphemous to the extreme. And God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment for that blasphemy. Why? Because they didn't study what he said in his word or they didn't care. So, so far we have learned three things about true worship. It would consist of many different people. It would be carried out in many different places. It would be conducted in spirit and in truth. And finally, it would be the culmination of all the redemptive history. Guys, you need to understand that the goal of all of redemptive history from the garden, the fall, all the way through the culmination where Christ reigns in glory over the entire world forever. You need to understand that the goal of all of redemptive history was for the Father to gather from humanity a community of redeemed people who would forever worship God. In fact, in Revelation 5, the Apostle John is taken to heaven in the future and sees the vision of this very thing. I don't have time to read it to you. Revelation 5, verses 8 to 14. But John sees around the throne of God now People from all over, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all who have been redeemed. God is no respecter of persons. By this time, as John sees this group in heaven around the throne, they are all worshiping the Lord from every place on the planet. As God has reached out and people have responded and become his people. Look, it's in, and we're done, but it's interesting to me that Jesus in John 4 didn't say that the Father was seeking converts, did he? He said the Father is seeking worshipers. And I've talked about this before, but let me end with it. Do you know that keeping you from going to hell was not God's primary purpose for saving you or me? Keeping us from going to hell was not God's primary purpose for saving us. If keeping people from going to hell was God's primary concern and motivation in saving us, listen, I got a better solution. Don't make anybody at all. Don't create anybody, then nobody goes to hell. You understand? If that was God's main concern, I don't want to see people go to hell, then don't create anybody, then nobody goes to hell. Of course, that wasn't his main concern. The reason the Lord saved us was not to keep us from going to hell, as nice as that was. It was to make us true worshipers. 
true worshipers. That is what he desires. That is what he is seeking after. That is the ultimate purpose for which we were created and redeemed, that we would become a community of true worshipers who would, as Isaiah the prophet said, forever worship the Lord with joyful shouting and everlasting joy. That's why we were created, that we could someday receive Christ, be saved, become children of God, and true worshipers who will worship God forever and ever. You say, won't that get a little tedious? Won't that get a little boring? You know, I mean, you know, worshiping God forever. Won't, won't that get boring? Is that our, our future? And heaven is, well, there's other things we're going to be doing. But let me tell you something. The Bible says God makes all things new. In heaven, every time you worship the Lord will be like the first time. Every time. You will never get bored. You will never yawn. You never look at your watch like you're doing right now. I see you. Think I'm, think, think I'm not looking. I see you. Every time you open your mouth in praise, you like the full, first time. And what does the Bible say? In his presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. joy. A joy that never dissipates. A joy that, it's, it's a joy inexpressible and full of glory that will never fade away. That's what await, awaits us someday, is true worshipers. We get to do what we're, we start here on the earth, but we get to do it now in the presence of God forever. So next week, I'd like to kind of pick up with this thought of true worship. If that's what the Father is seeking after, if that's the most important thing we can learn about and do, then let's look at it again next week from a different direction because this is a very important topic. And may God give us grace to look at this in a way that will help us to become better worshipers right now and then again for all eternity. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us out of every nation, basically, and continue to redeem sinners. And we thank you, Lord, that now as your people, we come together as a community. I don't care black, white, yellow, whatever. We're people. We are now your children. And there should never be a prejudice in the family of God towards anyone in the family. So, Lord, give us grace. Pour your love upon our church that your agape love would permeate every area of this church. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, and ask you to continue to bless these studies on this important topic. From your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.